Hey guys, welcome to the show today. I wanted to share a really exciting and I believe timely uh, message for you uh, with a sermon I recently preached at 412 Church in Murrieta, California for Pastor Tim Thompson, who's a real warrior uh, of a pastor and whose congregation is growing rapidly in the season because he's keeping his church wide open and he's contending on behalf of the rights of not just our pre-born neighbors, um, but our born neighbors as well, who are increasingly having their natural rights attacked by the state. But nowhere is an example of the government attacking the rights of our neighbors more prevalent than the issue of abortion with the most first and fundamental of all rights, life being denied to pre-born children for nearly 49 years. And so I want you to listen to this message because this is a Kairos moment that we're living in as Christians. And if we don't wake up soon to end abortion, not only will we never end abortion in this country, but we won't be able to participate in a free system that enables us to freely contend on behalf of pre-born children. So we're going to talk about what we believe, what we're facing, and what we can do in this Kairos moment to finally bring about an end to abortion. Buckle up. Here we go. Good afternoon. How are you guys? The only afternoon service, right? Yeah, awesome. So you guys are on like what, the third latte, fourth espresso. I mean, I expect you to be awake, all right? No excuses here, all righty. Well, it's good to see you guys. It really is. I, I spent so much of last fall speaking to a bunch of masked kids everywhere I spoke. So I was like, I don't know if they're going to jump me in the parking lot afterwards, if they hate me, or if they're actually enjoying this presentation. So I know it seems like uh, we've been quite a while into this now. Um, but it's always wonderful to see your faces and see you smiling back at me. So thank you for being here. Um, I love coming to this church. I love your pastor, Tim Thompson, and your entire leadership here. They treat me so wonderfully. But really, it's just an honor because I like to toe the line with men and women who understand that the womb and the genocide of God's babies, more than any other issue, is the one point at which the world and the devil are most vehemently and passionately attacking. And this is not to make light of other issues going on in the country. God has called some of you to very specific issues, right? Praise God for that. I believe God does put a calling on people's lives and hearts for specific things, specific people, and at specific times. And I would never demean you for devoting your life to another justice cause. Many of them I feel just as broken and burdened for as well. However, we understand, right, that while many issues are important, they don't all carry the same moral weight, we understand this. It's not like women in 1850s America had it great. They did not have equal voting rights back then. Women were still being trafficked. We still had brothels. We still had child abuse. We still had spousal abuse. We had a lot of bad things going on in 1850s America. But when I say that date to you, what do you think of? Slavery. There were a lot of other horrific things going on in 1940s Germany. Human beings are sinfully flawed and do a lot of nasty things, don't we? Especially when you take God out of the picture. We go right back to demon worship. And yet, when I tell you 1940s Germany, what do you think of? The Holocaust. So while many issues are important, amen, absolutely, they don't all carry the same moral weight. You see, abortion strikes to the very heart of who we are as a people in a republic. It represents our national consciousness. Do we really believe in these founding ideals and truths? that we claim are self-evident, our founders said, that we have inalienable rights, that among these are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, if an entire subset of the human species can be set aside for slaughter because the secular progressive movement said that they're human non-persons, then do we really believe these founding ideals and truths? And that's why we had an abolitionist movement that's why Abraham Lincoln spent so much of his time lambasting plantation owners, slavery supporters, and the Democrat Party back then who also believed that not all humans are persons. Wake up, newsflash, public service announcement, they believe the same thing today, that not all humans are persons, and they get to decide the litmus test for a person, huh? We're in it again. We're doing it again. So when woke pastors like Tim Keller... All right, let me pause. He's not totally woke. He's just like half woke, okay? And I do believe many people are in the kingdom of God because of Tim Keller's writings, by the way. I've been blessed by many of his books. So let me just like preface that, okay? But the world has been destroyed by really good men, 
okay? <laughs> so, like, we need to be very clear. You might be a nice guy. You might be able to beautifully articulate and explain the gospel. But if you flinch at the one point at which the world and the devil are most vehemently attacking, then you're part of the problem, right? Albert Einstein once said that the world will not be destroyed by the doers of evil, but by those who know better and don't do anything, who stand by and watch. John Stuart Mill put this beautifully. He says, a man who has nothing for which he is willing to fight, nothing which is more important than his own personal safety, is a miserable creature who has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. That's the problem when the church says, we just preach the gospel and we don't do politics. The problem with that is you will eventually run out of other people's willingness to sacrifice for the liberties you take for granted and won't contend for the posterity of the country and your children. That's the problem. Very easy to drink from the streams of liberty. While others are poisoning the water hole and doing nothing to purify that water. Doing nothing to remind yourselves of the source of liberty. As my pastor Rob McCoy loves to say, liberty is not man's idea, it's God's idea. And Americans drink deeply from the streams of liberty and we forget its source, God himself. The church used to be the counselor to the king. The pulpits were the counselor to the people, reminding them, the reason you love liberty and freedom is because those are God's idea and he gave them to you and eternity's written on the heart of man. And yet, who feels encouraged and very excited about our political moment? Who's excited to hand down this country to your children and grandchildren right now? Of course not. But I'm here this afternoon to tell you, brothers and sisters, that all of the issues we see going on right now go right back to life. The reason why the republic is crumbling before our very eyes is because the foundation of the republic is rotten, brothers and sisters. The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How can the right to liberty and pursuit of happiness sit on a foundation that is crumbling? If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. That is the most fundamental right. And this is why Ronald Reagan, who used to be pro-choice as governor in California and passed pro-choice legislation and had blood on his hands because of it, had a conversion to the pro-life position. And Reagan wrote his book, Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation. Beautiful title if you understand what we're talking about, because abortion does represent our national consciousness, doesn't it? About what we really believe about human beings and the natural rights of man. And in his book, Reagan says, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln recognized that we could not survive as a free land as long as some men could decide that others were not fit to be free and should therefore be slaves. Likewise, we cannot survive as a free country today as long as some men can decide that others are not fit to live and should therefore be abandoned to abortion and infanticide. So there is no cause more important than affirming than the transcendent right to life of all human beings, the right without which no other rights have any meaning. In other words, if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. But don't worry, you can trust Dr. Fauci, the high priest of secular progressivism. Don't worry, you can trust the CDC and the FDA and the World Health Organization and all of the groups who are pro-abortion. Don't worry, you can trust them. You can definitely trust them with your rights. They will definitely contend for your right to liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness when they defend slaughtering a million babies a year and ripping their limbs off of their bodies with the words reproductive health care. And their new one is uh, reproductive um, justice. It's actually just to rip the arms off of babies in the womb. That's justice! That's their new euphemism, by the way. It says it's the last couple of years it's been the new mainstream on reproductive justice. You can trust them. Don't worry. Just like you could uh, trust Stephen Douglas, the racist Democrat who ran against Abraham Lincoln for the 1860 election to protect the other natural rights of blacks who were freed. No, of course not! And it took 100 years for that party to finally recognize the racist history and past before we had the Civil Rights Amendment passed. Oh, and then they still lynched 300,000 black babies every year in the womb, and then they call that another euphemism. Because like the baby and like the slave, they still believe that some human beings are property! and can be treated however they want by the elite class, the privileged class, those with born privilege, who weren't murdered, who weren't aborted, whose mothers weren't exercising their right to choose, 
to kill an innocent human being because they didn't meet their parents' litmus test of unwanted, subhuman, non-persons. The same worldview, huh? And you watched this play out in real time last year, didn't you? Democratic mayors, governors, refusing to protect your natural right to liberty, to run your businesses in accordance with your best judgment, to get out of the doors of your business, <laughs> to evaluate your own level of risk for your day-to-day decision-making, to gather, to hug, to worship, and to sing. Ah, yes, you remember Newsom last year? No singing! Stop it! Don't worship the prenatal deity who became the God-man at the moment of conception. No worshiping, Christians. But if you're a deacon in the church of secular progressivism and you march through the streets of L.A. in the thousands, or Detroit, or D.C., or Chicago, or Atlanta, and you sing their hymnal book, America sucks, burn it down, the liturgy of an alternative religion that masquerades as politics in order to keep the pulpit silent because the culture of death knows how much pastors be, are fear being labeled political. So when you're told by woke pastors that we're making an idol out of politics, who's heard that? You're making an idol out of politics. You care more about the GOP than Jesus. Yeah, we've all been told that. You know what? You're making an idol out of not being political. You care so much about being perceived as apolitical that you'll abdicate what is actually a moral and spiritual duty to engage on what the culture of death labels political issues. So you're allowing the other side to define the terms of engagement. Who's really making an idol? Right, because if you preached a sermon about abortion as child sacrifice and those who vote for that party empowering the murder of babies, you'd lose over 50% of your tithers who are registered Democrats who don't want to have their bigotry challenged from the pulpit and their pastor. Oh, who's really making an idol? Interesting. Interesting, interesting. Hmm. Typical, huh? They do the very things that they accuse their opponents of doing. Same mayors and governors refusing to protect your natural rights to property. I think a lot of businesses were like burned down last year or something like that. And a lot of them were owned by black people, which is so strange because the people marching and burning them down said the Black Lives Matter. I'm just so confused. Right, because you lynch 300,000 black babies in the womb every year. Why would I trust you to protect any other right that flows from that first and most important of all rights, life? While many issues are important, they don't all carry the same moral weight. So the republic is falling around us because of the church's failure to contend on behalf of righteousness, to put our faith out into the public square, to stand in the middle of the road of the highway of the culture of death with a big sign that says, stop, and you will not move any further into our school to indoctrinate our young people with radical sexual education, that if it wasn't for California's obscenity exemption law, would be illegal if it was shown by your neighbor to your child. Oh, but if it's done in the classroom, then it's just educational? Right, because follow the science. (laughs) It's just science. It's just science that this type of radical sexual education, which goes back to Alfred freaking Kinsey, who did experiments on human sexuality based off of the actual abuse and rape of minors, if you study the history, who then helped launch the organization called SECAS, the Sexuality Information Education Council of the United States. Guess who started that? The former medical director for Planned Parenthood started that. And she took seed money from, guess who? Hugh Hefner to help found it. These were the people who write the curriculum called Comprehensive Sexuality Education in Today's Public Schools. Planned Parenthood helped launch the organization that writes the curriculum today for what they call sex ed. It's just healthy science, it's sex ed, to keep your children safe, right. Because when you sexualize young people, then they'll have more sex, more unplanned pregnancies, more unborn children who become prospects for abortion. When will the church wake up and stand up and say enough is enough and embrace a comprehensive Christianity, not a compartmentalized Christianity, a Christianity that gets you off the bench and gets you comfortable with being uncomfortable? Oh, because we're not in this alone. Because the Holy Spirit slips his hand through us like puppets to accomplish his purposes on this world. Abortion is the number one moral issue of our day. Once again, praise God for the other issues that God has called you to. However, when we genocide a million humans a year and it's legal and you fund it, can I submit to you this afternoon that we all have a role to play to end that when we're talking about something as evil as that? And those who say we don't have 
an individual role in our lives to end abortion, would never say the same thing about slavery or the Holocaust. In fact, they looked down their noses at the churches and Christians who allowed the slavery here and the Holocaust in Germany, and they say, what kind of Christians were those? They must not have had a very good walk with Jesus. They must have had a cheap grace, to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They must have made an idol out of their tithing and their, and their um, reputations in the community uh, if they couldn't even get uncomfortable enough to save Jews and free the black man and woman. Oh, you mean like you're doing today to the preborn when you abdicate your duty to protect them? This is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Right? We look down our noses in 2021 at these churches who failed to stop slavery in the Holocaust, and we go, <laughs> what rubes. Pathetic bigots who couldn't get uncomfortable to protect their neighbors. We have slavery in America today. We have lynchings in America today. They're called womb, womb lynchings. And they happen at the tune of a million a year to the most innocent, most, most defenseless human beings in our midst. This is called soft bigotry, by the way. Soft bigotry is when you admit that the victim classes are human and they have dignity, but that they don't deserve legal protections. So Tim Keller wrote a piece in the New York Times because the New York Times never publishes op-eds from conservative pastors who fight. They only publish op-eds from woke pastors who don't fight. That's why you'll never see an op-ed in the New York Times from Jack Hibbs or Rob McCoy or Tim Thompson, by the way, just to let you know. So anytime there's a pastor writing an op-ed in the New York Times, you could probably know they're a coward who won't stand up and defend the least of these. It's not a rule across the board, but it probably, it probably usually is. The opinion editorial board at New York Times is not going to publish a piece by Jack Hibbs. And he writes a piece about how Christians in the 1850s were sinning by not getting political. And he says, he said, because that was called, I'm, I'm sort of quoting pieces of it. You can go look it up. It's called, how do Christians fit into a two-party system? They don't. That's, that's what it's called. Right, we don't fit perfectly into a two-party system. We, per, we fit perfectly into a monarchy because Jesus is king and he's coming back. But when both parties are sinful and fallen, you work within the one that provides you the best opportunity to love neighbor and hold back those staggering towards slaughter and to promote righteousness and withhold evil. And today, that's only one party. Now, there's plenty of reform that needs to happen in the GOP. Good Lord, is it hard to find GOP leaders with spines? I'm not saying it's a perfect party. Of course, it's a sinful party filled with a bunch of sinners. But you work within sinful fallen systems on this world to promote righteousness and withhold evil insofar as you can given current political realities. So Tim Keller writes this piece where he says, for the churches in 1850s America who didn't get political, he said they were supporting the social status quo. So if you don't vote for Republicans, because that was the only party that was fighting slavery, remember? Oh yeah, the party launched to end slavery. According to Tim Keller, if you don't vote for Republicans in 1850, you're supporting the social status quo, which was slavery. Which, according to that thought experiment then, if you voted for Stephen Douglas, the racist Democrat who ran against Lincoln for, in the 1860 election, that would be more sinful, right? If not voting is supporting slavery, then obviously voting for the party of slavery <laughs> is supporting slavery more. Okay, this is what Tim Keller writes in his piece, not me, okay? Okay, <laughs> then in September of 2020 last year, he put on Facebook, the Bible tells me abortion is a sin and a great evil. Okay, amen, you're confessing all the right beliefs but it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortions in this country or which policies are most effective. This means, this is a verbatim quote, this means when it comes to voting, taking political positions, and determining alliances, the Christian has liberty of conscience. When it comes to voting, because the Bible doesn't tell us, use this policy to end abortion. <laughs> It, therefore, Christians have liberty of conscience. Let me translate for, that for, that, that for you. Freedom to vote however you want, right? So according to Kim Keller, voting for Democrats in 1850 equals blatant sin, but then voting for Democrats today equals liberty of conscience. I'm so confused, Tim. Please help me, Pastor Keller. So the blood of unborn children doesn't run deep enough or hot enough to warrant their political protection then, I guess. So you're a soft bigot. Because the abuse of the born black man and woman means failure to protect them is sin, but voting for the party that also believes not all humans as persons today is liberty of conscience? I'm so confused! 
Yes, because these pastors flinch at the one point at which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking. So when they tell you that they would have been best friends with Frederick Douglass, when they tell you, I would have been part of the confessing church with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the way that you can know whether that's true or not is how they engage abortion today. Because abortion is wrong for the same reasons that slavery and the Holocaust were wrong. In each circumstance, the government decided that some humans are persons and some humans are not persons. And the humans that are not persons, we can justify killing them through you euphemisms. So slavery becomes job creation, the Holocaust becomes ethnic cleansing, and abortion becomes reproductive justice. Yes, the euphemisms of demons, the euphemisms of an alternative religion that justify their bigotry by slapping the sticker of science onto it. Follow the science. Dr. Fauci funds the University of Pittsburgh, where after aborting babies on that campus's hospital, they scalped the heads of those babies aborted between 20 and 24 weeks old, which means they could have survived in a neonatal unit with the help of heroic doctors, and they take the scalps of those children and they insert them subcutaneously on lab rats to create what we call humanized mice. Who remembers this story? Humanized mice. Then that rat grows the infant hair that would have grown on that infant's scalp had they not been aborted. That University of Pittsburgh University does that with money funded by Fauci from the National Institute for Infectious Diseases. Then they test solutions to staph infections on the lab rats before we do it on human beings. But you can trust them to protect your other rights. Ridiculous. And this is what the church has allowed by abdicating our moral, spiritual, and political duty to contend in the public square. With friends like that, who needs enemies? With pastors like that, who needs disciplers? So whether it's Tim Keller, Ed Stetzer, Andy Stanley, or Christian colleges that help create advocates for the enemy, the ranks are thinning, ladies and gentlemen. But when that happens, we know who's with us. When that happens and people are forced to pick sides, at least we know who is embracing a comprehensive Christianity, or what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called a costly grace, a grace that required the sacrifice of an innocent human being on your behalf on Calvary. But the culture of death demands that we sacrifice the lives of other innocent human beings so their life can be improved and they can live a little bit longer. This is what we're facing. And if we do not end abortion soon as the church in America, if we don't wake up and all determine in our own lives what's our individual responsibility on this, on this issue, not only will we never end abortion in this country, brothers and sisters, but every other right we take for granted will deteriorate before our very eyes and you will hand a country to your children and grandchildren that you do not recognize. Ronald Reagan once said that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same, or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like to live in the United States where men were free. We cannot survive as a free land as long as some men can decide that others are not fit to free or not fit to live and should therefore be slaves or abandoned to abortion and infanticide, to quote Ronald Reagan once again. Amen. This is a Kairos moment for the church. Not all times and seasons are the same, are they? Ecclesiastes talks about this. Sometimes and seasons are different. Scripture says that God determined the boundaries of our existence, meaning that you don't exist in 2021 America accidentally. God determined it. He made it so. So if he made it so, what does that mean? There's a reason for why you live in this time. And if there's a reason, then there's a purpose. And if there's a purpose, then we have duties and responsibilities for the season we have been placed in. And this is a kairos moment for the church, the country, and the pro-life movement. For God will not bless a country, a people, or a church that allow the slaughter of his children that are defended under the euphemisms of an alternative. Religion! Secular progressivism, friends, is not an alternative politics. It is an alternative religion that masquerades as science and politics to confuse the polity and keep the pastors silent. You keep your liturgy in the churches, pastors, 
and this is why Newsom and the entire liberal regime likes the public hymnal book of the progressive religion in the streets of LA, but not your religion inside the church. Because when we participate in worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who entered human history in a uterus to redeem mankind from their sins, then Newsom and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and Andrew Cuomo and the entire liberal establishment, which is built on the mutilated bodies of dead children, understand that you might start living and acting more courageously because you know that at the end of our life, we only owe an account to him as to what we did or did not do in the season that he placed us in. And if the church starts acting like that, maybe those pesky Christians will realize that Gavin Newsom Leaney is not God, and there is a God, and we will be accountable to him one day. This is why this is an alternative warring religion that we're contending against, not a political dispute. So if we're going to be a voice for the unborn, if we're going to embrace our duty in this moment, our individual mandate to love our neighbor, to hold back those staggering toward the slaughter, Proverbs 24, 11. to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, Proverbs 31, 8. I cannot think of another class of human beings more unable to speak up for or defend their own rights than preborn babies in a womb that our Savior became human in, Mary's uterus. If we are to contend in this battle, in this Kairos moment, we must know what we believe, what we're facing, and what we must do. What are we facing? What do we believe, and what must we do? We believe that every human being is created in the image of God. And therefore, they have human rights unlike any other form of life. This is why PETA doesn't stand outside of in and out when you drive through with your three-by-three and say, what about the cow's rights? Even though PETA is pro-abortion, gives to pro-abortion causes, but really loves those cows. But they don't even live in a way that they believe that the cow is just as valuable or more so than the human being. Because eternity is written on the heart of man, amen? So we come from God, we've been created by God, so our hearts can't help but recognize truth when we see and hear it. Because we come from the divine logos of the universe, the essence of existence itself, the word, the logos. So we don't have to make a biblical argument to defend our beliefs. Did you know that? The science says from the moment of conception, you were a distinct living and whole human being. Distinct because you could be a different gender than your mother. Right, gentlemen? Preborn males, baby. Preborn males. <laughs> so when they tell you, no uterus, no opinion, you know what I say? I'm contending on behalf of preborn men who are discriminated against through abortion. But no uterus, no opinion, they say. Men can't speak on the issue of abortion. The only reason we're in the mess that we're in is because men have castrated their moral compass to allow a culture to murder children and stand by their woman and say, your body, your choice. The only reason we're in this position is because of what C.S. Lewis calls men without chests. Here's what he meant by that, by the way, if you haven't read The Abolition of Man. The premise of his entire book, who's read The Abolition of Man? The premise of his entire book is the head rules the belly through the chest. The head is the intellect and the rational man. The belly is the animalistic man. That bad part of human beings that say, give me pleasure now. Desire, satisfaction, sex, food, video games, pleasure, right? The animalistic part of human species. The chest is virtue and honor. So if the head rules the belly through the chest, then the rational man rules the animal through virtue. So what are men without chests? The rational man rules the animalistic man with nothing to temper it in between. This is the result of the sexual revolution and of relativism, the bastard child of postmodernism, which says all truth is relative, and Jesus, I'm just speaking my truth. There's no objective truth that holds true for everyone. All truth is merely molded to the subjective personal opinions of the individual. So therefore, there's nothing wrong with Adolf Hitler. In fact, there's no moral difference between Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa. The former like to kill people and the latter like to feed them, but who are we to judge? Because all truth is personal. So when you remove truth, morality, virtue, aren't human beings really good at justifying intellectually whatever they want animalistically? Oh yeah, no uterus, no opinion. The reason why we're in this mess is because men embrace that bigoted, emasculated opinion and position on men. 
But the science is clear. From the moment of conception, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. You had your entire DNA from the moment of conception. You were living. You were directing your own internal growth from within. Pregnant women don't rub their uteruses and say, don't forget to grow today, baby. Because babies develop themselves from within. Did you know this? They develop themselves. I guess they're living and they're whole because the baby from conception has everything they need to realize their full growth and development as one of us. They just need time. Like a Polaroid photo, when it gets spit out, you don't see the whole thing immediately. But if I rip it out of your hands and I tear it up in little pieces, you would be upset. You'd be like, dude, that photo was developing. Why'd you do that? But then I'd say, no, that wasn't a picture. It was a black smudgy on a white piece of paper. <laughs> but you'd say, no, Seth, <laughs> the picture of the sunset was already there. Everything that was necessary for that photo to realize its full development was already present when the photo got spit out. It just needed time. That's what I mean when I say the science says you were a distinct living and whole human being from the moment of conception. Everything necessary for your development was present at that moment. Even if we couldn't see you yet, you just needed time. So what do we believe? That's what we believe. Hashtag science, follow the science. And yet they don't follow the science, do they? They use science as a political cudgel to silence their political opponents. The most basic of scientific facts. Men are men, women are women. You cannot bridge that gap because you want to. And unborn babies are persons. The most basic biological facts they don't accept because they don't follow the science. They use it to silence you. So that's what we believe. And yet most pro-abortion people believe that human life begins at the moment of conception. Did you know this? Most of them will admit that the baby is human. Biologically, it has human DNA, but it's not a person. Does that sound familiar? Oh, yeah, it does. It sounds very familiar, actually. Not all humans are persons. What happens to a society when being human is not enough to ground your rights, brothers and sisters? They know it's a human. I could cite to you Cecile Richards, the former president of Planned Parenthood. I could cite to you David Boonin, who wrote a book called A Defense of Abortion. I could cite to you Peter Singer, who defends abortion and infanticide up to one-year-old, who's a philosopher at Princeton University. I could cite to you the director of the largest British abortion provider in the UK. I, I could cite to you quotes from all of these individuals who say, yes, of course we know there there's a human being from conception. They know this. They say it's not a person. Anytime someone tells you the unborn is a human but not a person, you ask them two questions. One, what's the difference between a human and a person? Second question, have you ever met a human that's not a person? What does that, what do they look like? I'm so, do you have a picture on your iPhone? Human non-persons, what do they look like? That pro-choicer will take you in a time machine with Marty McFly and Doc back to 1850 America. Oh yeah, oh yeah, back to the same political party who believed the same thing then, that not all humans are persons. So how do we determine who's in the human family? How do we determine who gets these personhood rights if it's not grounded in the fact that we're all freaking human? Then where does it come from? Ah, the high priests of secular progressivism, the political elite. They decide the litmus test for personhood. <laughs> they determine the checklists that you must meet to be a person. Cognitive, cognitive abilities, functions, accidental properties. Things that come in varying degrees amongst human beings. Because look around the room, do we have gender in common? Do we have skin color, age, size, intellectual ability, musical ability, athleticism? Do we have any of these things in common? The only thing we have in common is a human nature. And when did we get a human nature? Oh, when we became human. <laughs> and when did we become human? Follow the science back to the moment of conception. So the litmus test for personhood in 1850 America was intellect and skin color. Did you know racists claimed that black men and women were stupider? They had a lower IQ and their skin was different. Therefore, it's so obvious they're not persons. You know what Abraham Lincoln's response was to that? You say A is white and B is black. It is color then. The lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Take care. 
By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a skin fairer than your own. Oops. And this was in a piece called Fragments on Slavery that Lincoln wrote, and he used this type of reasoning when he debated Stephen Douglas in the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates, the, the racist Democrat who was personally opposed to slavery in his personal life. I would never buy a slave. Anyone know someone who's personally pro-life? Right? That was Stephen Douglas on slavery. I would never buy a slave and treat them like cattle, but other people should have the right to do that. I would never beat my wife, but spousal abuse should be legal. I would never sex traffic minors, but it should be legal. Well, that was Stephen Douglas in 1858 on slavery. And Lincoln continues, and he says, okay, you do not mean color exactly. You mean whites are intellectually the superior of blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them. Take care again. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. What is Lincoln pointing out about Southern states' argument for slavery? They were grounding personhood and rights in things that come in varying degrees. Does intellect come in varying degrees? Yeah, we don't all have the same IQ. In fact, if all the white people came up here, not that I care about skin color, but since the left is obsessed with it, and we held our palms up to one another, would even all of us Caucasian folks have a varying degree of skin color? Yeah, we would. So skin color comes in varying degrees. So according to the racist plantation owners, the albino rules over all. <laughs> and the person with the highest IQ rules over all. And if you're one point beneath his IQ, you're screwed and you're a non-person and you can be genocided. And then if you're a slightly darker shade than the albino, you're also a non-person who could be genocided. See, if you ground rights in things that come in varying degrees, it follows that rights therefore come in varying degrees. So human equality is destroyed. Chaos once again. Oh, right, that's what they want. Burn it all to the ground and remake it in your own image. Systemic racism, they say, justifies burning every institution to the ground and remaking it in their own image. And that's always been the point, to entirely upend society so they can institute their own creation story. Oh, it's almost like it's an alternative religion. Hmm. So when you say, I don't speak against politics, I say, you don't speak against justice then, or for justice. You're not willing to contend with demonic ideologies that masquerade as false compassion. Scripture says, even Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Reproductive health care sounds great, except that's genocided, genocide defended under false compassion. So that's what we're contending against, is a not all humans are persons worldview and in elite class, it gets to determine the litmus test for personhood. But just like the arguments for slavery could also be turned around and used to justify enslaving the white man, right? That's what Lincoln pointed out. Similarly, arguments that deny the personhood to the pre-born can also be turned right around and used to justify killing the born because it's the same demonic worldview and therefore it has the same flaws and problems. So... How do they defend their argument that the unborn is a human but not a person? They say the baby is so different than us, right? Just like Nazis said Jews are so different and racists said blacks are so different. So what differences? Well, SLED is your acronym to remember the differences that ageists, pro-choice is ageism, right? That ageists use to argue that the unborn is not a person. Size, level of development, environment or location, and dependency. Those little untermensch blob of tissues are smaller, less developed, in a different environment, and more dependent. Therefore, don't you see, you silly, stupid Christian? They're obviously not persons. Look how different they are. I'm six foot three. I'm 98% taller than the audiences I speak to. The rest of you are now non-persons, and if I kill you, I can call it reproductive health care. Oh, you don't get it? I keep forgetting you're not woke. Let me explain it to you. <laughs> In killing you, I prevented you from reproducing. Because you're dead, right? So you can't reproduce. So that's, don't you see that that's why it's reproductive health care? Right? We've got to kill all the people because we have overpopulation problems, right? To quote Bill Gates and Fauci and all of them. Got to start with the babies. Got to kill them all. So that's why it's reproductive health care. What? What are you talking about? Size has no relevance to our value. 
men are generally larger than women, it doesn't mean men are generally more valuable than women, right? It's not like Shaquille O'Neal is any more valuable than Barbara Streisand, right? So size has no relevance to our value. Then they say, but the baby's less developed. Okay, yes. Fetuses are less developed than infants, and infants are less developed than toddlers, and toddlers are less developed than teenagers. But they say, because the baby's less developed, they don't have certain functions yet. This is the worldview called functionalism. Functionalism grounds your rights in how you function and perform rather than on who you are. Because we all have an underlying nature to realize certain functions when we get older, right? So my wife recently realized, she found out that men don't reach their mental peak until their 40s. And she said, hallelujah, Jesus. She's really holding out hope for me. She's very excited <laughs> for my 40-year-old birthday in 10 years, for me to reach my full mental capacity and so, you know, be a better husband, I guess. I don't, I don't really know what that means. But there are aspects of my mental development I have not realized yet, correct? But I will give in time. Your teenagers haven't realized the same level of development and mental capacity that you have as their parents. Does that mean that they're not whole persons now? If you have a teenager, don't answer the question, right? <laughs> So we all find ourselves on a different tick mark on the continuum of human development. But when did the continuum begin? Again, the moment of conception. This is the problem with grounding rights in anything other than a human nature. So they say because the baby's less developed, they don't have these functions yet, like rationality, self-awareness, and consciousness. Right? But when you're sleeping, you're not conscious. Right? When you're in a coma, you're not self-aware. Did you know infants don't reach self-awareness until weeks or months after birth? Can you kill them? The pro-choicer says, no, of course not. They're like, oh, they don't like those ideas. That's not, no, 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 they're your ideas. They're your ideas, and I am, I'm, I'm applying them consistently this side of the womb. And they go, oh, gosh. But then my, my bigotry might be used against me to justify mistreating me. Right. They don't actually believe that these functions ground personhood. They use them conveniently to deny personhood to the class of human beings they already wanted to deny personhood to. Because killing the unborn allows them to separate sex from procreation, sex from responsibility. They want orgasms without responsibility. And the left has been obsessed with sex for decades, by the way, hundreds of years, actually. Like, there are, there are writings from big leftist deacons in the Church of Progressivism over the last 200 years about how, like, if we can just get everyone orgasming and having sex all the time, we'll literally cure diseases. Like, the big leftist writers wrote about this for, for decades. They're obsessed with sex, right? But Sex can't be the God that the left requires it to be if it comes with duties and responsibilities. Namely, the children you might create. You see? So yes, the baby's less developed, but we're all less developed than other people amongst us. They don't have the same intellectual capacities we do yet, but they have an underlying nature that will enable them to realize that given time if you don't genocide them. Uh, they say we can kill the baby because they're in a different environment. What environment? A womb. Yeah, we're all former womb dwellers. That's where we all came from. And according to the logic of abortion advocates, remember, that baby is a non-person with no constitutional rights until birth. Because they're in the environment of a womb, her body, her choice, so they treat the baby like the property of the mother. So what happens during childbirth that leads the pro-choicer to say, after that last toe slips out of the birth canal, it's a person with constitutional rights? What happens to that child that makes it a Untermensch, to quote the Nazi, subhuman, non-person blob of tissue, and suddenly a person with rights. Well, don't you know, the, the woke people will know this, the fetus fairy <laughs> flies up and sprinkles magical personhood-conferring fairy dust on the child as it exits the vaginal canal. So when the last toe leaves the, the birth canal, it's a person! Oh my gosh, it's a person! Here, mom! I mean, secular liberalism really does rot the brain, doesn't it? Because it rejects any objective moorings for society. Therefore, we are our own gods, and we get to decide who lives and who dies. By the way, did you know that we've, take, we've removed some babies via cesarean section in the second trimester who have spina bifida? We perform surgery on them and heal them and put them back in the uterus. So according to the logic of abortion advocates, it was a non-person blob of tissue with no rights. And then, remember, when it's out of her body, it has rights. So then it was taken out and had surgery. So then it was a person with rights. Then it was put back in. And then it lost, apparently, that intrinsic dignity in personhood once again. And then some moms, some of the moms have done this. They've actually given birth vaginally after a C-section that led to the surgery of their spina bifida baby. So then the baby goes through the birth canal, and then it gains personhood and intrinsic dignity once again. 
if you're not scratching your head, I got nothing else for you. <laughs> Wild. Makes no sense whatsoever. But yeah, secular humanism doesn't make any sense because it's based on fantasies and alternative reality and alternative false religion, which is what we're really contending against. And then they say the baby is dependent on the mother. Obviously, I hope you can see how stupid that is. Born people are dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, insulin, life-supporting caretakers. Infants are dependent on their mothers. If a mother didn't nurse her baby because she said, my breasts, my choice, my body, my choice, and the baby died and she was charged with infanticide, she wouldn't be able to argue from bodily autonomy to justify not feeding her infants. So yes, we're all dependent. I thought, oh, this is hilarious, by the way. The left says, Mother Earth, right? Mother Goddess Earth. That's why we have to kill babies and, and eugenics the old people, and we need everyone on birth control because, you know, Mother Earth, Mother Earth, overpopulation. So what are they saying? We're all dependent on Mother Earth, who they treat as a goddess. So I guess we're all on persons because we're all dependent on the soil and on the earth, without which we cannot continue to live, just like the unborn child. I find that hilarious, of course, because they would never use that to justify genociding themselves. Okay, so what do we believe? Science, that's what we believe. Distinct, living, and whole from the moment of conception. And then they say, yeah, it's a human, but not a person. Okay, you're repeating the bigotry of Dred Scott, and any argument you give me to justify killing the unborn, I can show you an example of a born person who could be adequately, justifiably killed by the same logic you just gave me for abortion. So, if you don't ground human value in our human nature, human equality is destroyed, we have chaos, and guess what? That's exactly what they want. Why, 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 why? Have you ever wondered why they care so much about abortion? For us, the right to life is the most important right, right? For them, if they can invert the right to life, there's nothing else they can't invert. So if you can invert the right to life and convince the American polity that murdering a million babies a year is reproductive justice, guess what? There's no end to your political project. You can then, therefore, successfully justify defending anything else and indoctrinating the public to view it as compassionate. And that's always been the point, to entirely upend society, to recreate it in their own image. Why? Because for the secular progressive movement, brothers and sisters, abortion is a sacrament. And I know you might be thinking, that's kind of weird, Seth. That's religious language, like c communion is a sacrament, marriage is a sacrament, baptism is a sacrament. And you're probably like, well, it's a pagan atheist movement, Seth. How could that be a sacrament? You see, a sacrament represents whose we are and whom we serve. It's a reminder of the body and the blood. It's the gospel on our tongues. Christ breaks his body, sheds his blood for the remission of sins and eternal life for those who repent. Peter Kraft explains this more, better than I ever could. Catholic philosopher says, abortion is the demonic parody of the Eucharist. That's why it uses the same holy words. This is my body but with the opposite blasphemous meaning. So Christ says, this is my body broken for you, right? Take and eat in remembrance of the King of Kings. The culture of death, not ironically, because it's a spiritual battle, says the same words, actually. This is my body, my choice. And I'll kill whatever's inside of my body because the serpent told me in Genesis 3, ye shall be as God. And a God gets to decide who lives and who dies, don't they? A God also gets to live forever. That's what makes a God a God, right? They're eternal. So the left craves the same thing we crave, which is to defeat death, to live forever. But friends, they stole that from the Christian worldview. 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be defeated is death. What they don't realize is that Christ who is sacrificed on Calvary has already done that. Good news, you don't have to keep killing babies to pursue eternal life. Christ has already died for you. He's defeated death. You can too. Through the blood and body of the fetal deity, the prenatal God-man, who took on flesh and identified with us from our most vulnerable stage, the prenatal stage, and allowed himself to be beaten, abused, and killed. The innocent former fetus who took the punishment for our sins is the only one who could do so because he was perfect in order to offer us a free way back to salvation and back to that garden to reject the serpent's lie and to spend eternity worshiping him in heaven. That's already been defeated, but the left doesn't understand that, so they're seeking to secure that which has already been secured for them on Calvary, which is to defeat death. So they kill babies through embryonic stem cell research to get their stem cells to cure diseases. The baby becomes a sacrifice for man's pursuit of eternal life. They kill babies to get their organs through fetal tissue harvesting, and they sell them or they use them to perform experiments to produce biological drugs and vaccines to extend our own lives. They're experimenting with prenatal gene editing as we speak where you grow a baby as far as you can in labs 
and then you edit their genes. It kills the baby to do that, but if we can just sacrifice as many of these little infants as possible until we can get rid of diseases from the gene code that we don't like, sacrifice the baby before we do it on ourselves and edit out the diseases we don't like on our gene code so we can live forever! The same scientists are creating human-monkey hybrids right now as we speak. They're growing them, they're developing them, and they're killing them to get their organs so that those of us who need organs can get it from the little human-monkey hybrids. The baby simply becomes a sacrifice for man's pursuit of eternal life. And cultures have always participated in human sacrifice, haven't they? To the sex gods, the war gods, the crop gods, with the belief that in sacrificing a human, their life would be blessed and they would get to live a little longer. But there's only one thing guaranteed in this life. We ain't getting out of it alive. Of course, you've never met a mere mortal. To quote C.S. Lewis, we're all eternal beings. It's just a question of whether we're going to burn in eternity or celebrate with our Savior in eternity. But do you see? It's the greatest sacrament of the religion of secular progressivism. Rather than accepting the broken body and shed blood of Christ for eternal life, the culture of death demands that we break the bodies and shed the blood of babies for eternal life. But it's still demon worship, because Satan has always been behind the killing of babies. He's the dragon in Revelation waiting for Mary to give birth so he can eat the Christ baby. He's behind the killing of babies by Herod in Bethlehem and by Pharaoh in Egypt. But Satan doesn't care what name you call him. He's fine to be called any name. Did you know that? He was happy to be called Moloch. In the Old Testament, and today he's happy if the culture of death dubs him the name self. Money, family, education, and career well-being. All the reasons that we justify for our abortions, but he's happy to be called those names. As long as we continue to shove children down his throat, he will say yes and amen, for he is the God of the religion of secular progressivism that masquerades as science and politics to keep you quiet so that we make an idol out of not being political while we allow actual demons to eat children, for his appetite for human blood will never be satiated. Satan would kill God if he could, but he can't. So he kills babies because he knows it wounds the heart of the Father, and it hurts the church, the very institution responsible for ending this evil. That's what we believe. That's what we're facing. What must we do? Greg Cunningham, a longtime leader of the pro-life movement and my personal godfather, once said that there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. That's because killing babies is very profitable, while saving them is very costly. So costly that large numbers of people who say they oppose abortion are not lifting a finger to stop it. Tim Keller. And those that do lift a finger do just enough to salve their conscience, but not enough to stop the killing. A stinging rebuke against the church of Christ. The measure of how much we care about this issue will not be found in the piety of our rhetoric, but in how much we are willing to sacrifice personally to stop the killing. What must we do? Love your neighbor. Oh, it's not complex. And the unborn is the only neighbor that it's legal to kill. A lawyer approached Jesus one day and he said, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how do I get to heaven? Jesus said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Boom! Got my MDiv, Jesus. Oh, yeah. I can summarize all the law and the prophets down to one sentence and two commandments. I'm a theological B.A. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Isn't it nice when God tells you your theology is correct? When you confess all the right beliefs. Eberhard Bethke, one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's best friends, later said that this was confession but not resistance. That German churches were confessing all the right beliefs but doing nothing to resist the evil of the Holocaust. So the lawyer confesses all the right beliefs. He tells Jesus, yes, I do know what is written in the law. And he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? 
How does he not know that? He just summarized the entire Pentateuch down to two commandments in one sentence. He's epic. How do you not have the same theological firepower to answer the much more simple question, who is neighbor? Wild. Or he does know who his neighbor is, but he's trying to create categories of neighbor and non-neighbor in order to shirk himself of his responsibility of loving the neighbors he doesn't want to. Or the ones that require big sacrifices to love. The ones that require getting uncomfortable. I would submit to you this afternoon that there is no other class of human beings alive today, brothers and sisters, to whom the question is more frequently directed, are they really neighbors though? Than the preborn image bearers in our midst. No other class of human beings alive today has that question asked of them more. Are they really though? Are they really though? Are they really though? Full humans, full neighbors, just like us? Are they really though? Or can I say I'm pro-life and then tell you you have liberty of conscience to vote for the people lynching your neighbors? Apparently you don't really believe they're full neighbors, Tim Keller. And who is my neighbor? What parable does Jesus tell in response to the question, who is my neighbor? Parable of the Good Samaritan. A man is traveling on the road, he's robbed, he's mugged, he's left for dead, and he's bleeding out. But don't worry, the pastors showed up. Hallelujah, right? The pastors the Levite and the priest, the religious leaders, the people who believe that all human beings are created in the image of God and the greatest commandments are to love God and love neighbor. They're here. They're here to show how much they love neighbor, right? I, I mean, they were opposed to street mugging. They were personally anti-street mugging. I would never street mug someone. They confessed the anti-street mugging position. They probably had the director of the local anti-street mugging clinic to their synagogue once a year to have five minutes to share about their ministry and went to a gala once a year to fundraise for the local anti-street mugging clinic. They were a super anti-street mugging synagogue. See any similarities there? But when they saw a bleeding victim, did they go out of their way to love their neighbor? Oh, no, they went out of their way to walk by on the other side of the road while the dude's bleeding out. It was the good Samaritan, the bleeding victim's natural enemy, because Jews and Samaritans hated one another, remember? Who, when he saw his enemy, Luke's gospel says he felt compassion, right? No, he had compassion. He bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, put him on his own donkey so he had to walk, took him to the nearest inn, nursed him back to health. Then he told the innkeeper, I have to go now. And when I come back, I'm going to cut you a check for any of the costs that accumulated in caring for this bleeding victim while I was gone. Radical sacrifices of his time, his energy, and his money to love his bleeding neighbor. If the Good Samaritan had that level of responsibility to a bleeding neighbor who he didn't know was going to get beat up and he didn't know where it was going to happen and then he just came upon him, how much greater of a responsibility do we have as pro-life Christians toward the pre-born bleeding neighbors in our midst when we have the addresses? We know every day when and where broken and hurting families are showing up and innocent human beings are scheduled to die. We have the addresses. They're on Google. You can search it. Where is the church? We're starting Love Life chapters at churches all across the state right now. And because of one of those, at Calvary Chapel Chino Hills, three to five babies are being saved every week and spared from human dismemberment because the church showed up and Satan sat down, brothers and sisters. Those women are getting discipled, baptized, and are having baby showers thrown for them by the Christians who are contending for the life of the orphan scheduled to die. Time, energy, and money is what the Good Samaritan sacrificed. Can we do the same? In Psalm 106, Jesus, God, addresses the Israelites for um, sacrificing their babies to demons. And he said, you sacrificed your sons and daughters to demons, and the land is desecrated with blood. Our land is desecrated with blood. We've been walking in it so long, we don't notice that our shoes are soaked in it. So what does God say to the Israelites after that in Psalm 106? So, I give you over to be ruled by those who hate you. Does it feel like we're being ruled by those who hate Christians? Oh, shocker. 
Because if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. And when we participate in child sacrifice, we partner with Satan. And God says in Psalm 106, I've left the building. You can be ruled by people who hate you. I'm done. God is not going to pour out his spirit on this land or country or church as long as we continue to allow the slaughter of his children. Revive us once again, O God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. And we wonder why the heavens are shut. We wonder why. Why isn't he pouring out his spirit? Because we're sacrificing our babies to demons. Or we stand by like the Levite and the priest and we're too busy. We will be making this church a Love Life Church partner here very shortly. You'll be getting more information soon to get involved. Sidewalk counseling, that's the hard one. Show up outside of death camps and plead for the life of the orphan. S mentors for those who choose life. Celebrate them as parents and throw them baby showers and introduce them to the gospel. Post-abortion healing and orphan foster care so that one day people stop running to abortion centers for hope and they start running to the church of Jesus Christ. Yeah. If the church got a Christian witness outside every abortion center in California, which is our goal by the end of 2022 in California, we would bankrupt the abortion industry in a matter of months or years and the politics would soon follow because God would pour out his spirit on this land and church once again for contending against the genocide of abortion of babies sacrificed to demons. Time, energy, and money. I know I went late. Let's finish with this. This is the story of a man who failed to love his neighbors that were being genocided and regretted it for the end of his days. Don't make his same mistake. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. I attended church since I was a small boy. We had heard the stories of what was happening to the Jews, but like most people today in this country, we tried to distance ourselves from the reality of what was really taking place. What could anyone do to stop it? So a, a railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we would hear the whistle from a distance and then the clacking of the wheels moving over the track. We became disturbed when one Sunday we noticed cries coming from the train as it passed by. We grimly realized that the train was carrying Jews. They were like cattle in those cars. Week after week, that train whistle would blow. We would dread to hear that sound of those old wheels because we knew that the Jews would begin to cry out to us as they passed by our church. It was so terribly disturbing. We could do nothing to help those poor innocent people, yet their screams tormented us. We knew exactly what time the whistle would blow, and we decided that the only way to becoming so disturbed by the cries was to start singing our hymns. By the time the train came rumbling past the churchyard, we were singing at the top of our voices. And if some of the cries reached our ears, we just sing a little louder until we could hear them no more. Years have passed and no one talks about it much anymore, but I can still hear that train whistle in my sleep. I can still hear them crying out for help. God forgive all of us that called ourselves Christians yet did nothing to intervene. Brothers and sisters, for 49 years, the American church has been singing louder over the silent screams of preborn image bearers. The silence of the shepherds on the abortion of the lambs led Francis Schaeffer to famously say, every abortion clinic ought to have a sign out front that says, open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. And we all know that strikes true, doesn't it? Slavery happened with the permission of the church. The Holocaust happened with the permission of the church. And the genocide of abortion is happening with the permission of the church. I believe one day when we stand before God, after we hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, we're also going to give an account for what we did or did not do to end this genocide because of the great atrocity it represents in this country and in this world, with 50 million babies murdered every year in abortion worldwide. And I pray that you, with me, with William Wilberforce, that great British abolitionist, can say, Lord, let it not be said of me, let it not be said of me, that I was silent when they needed me. The babies are waiting for us to intervene. God is waiting for the sleeping giant, the bride of Christ, to wake up. And the world is watching the bride of Christ.
to see if this will be our finest hour or our final hour. While many issues are important, they don't all carry the same moral weight. If you want to know how you would have lived on the Holocaust or on slavery, it's how you're living on the issue of abortion today. However you engage this genocide is your answer to to what degree you would have engaged those other injustices. God is waiting. When we show up, Satan sits down. He could end abortion if he wanted to, but for whatever reason, God chooses to work through his bride. Will we wake up? I'll see you on the battlefield. Now go out there and give them heaven. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this important message today. Would you do me a favor? Would you share this message uh, broadly? I believe that this message has the uh, potential to really wake up people that really need to be pushed that last little bit over their line to where they're no longer satisfied with the status quo and with their apathy in regards to everything we see going on in our country. So please share this message. We'll have it up on YouTube as well so you can watch it if you'd like and we'll be breaking up clips for you to share on social media to challenge people in your life to think deeply about this issue, uh, what abortion really represents as such a stain on the conscience of the country and what it means for the future of the country as well. If you want to connect with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com to sign up for my newsletter to see my speaking schedule. Uh, if you want to hear me come speak live and local this fall or winter um, and to book me for an event, my 2022 calendar is starting to fill up. And as a reminder, we have a generous church partner that will underwrite my expenses for Christian events, churches, youth groups, etc., who don't have the funds to cover my costs. And so that is taken care of if you want to bring me somewhere in this country um, to participate with me in this Kairos moment of waking up the church. If you want to partner with me to expand this content and reach more people, head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. And if you are asking the question, what can I do in my own life to end abortion, then head on over to lovelife.org forward slash America. That's lovelife.org forward slash America to fill out the sheet to get involved, trained up to build up the Christian community in your area to end abortion, to raise up leaders, to shut down abortion centers so that God might spare us and the judgment awaiting us. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.